Coverage of the Expanse continues with episode eight, Pyre; episode nine, The Weeping Somnambulist; and episode ten, Cascade. I'd say there's a lot of different plots coming together. A few others maybe are on hold for now, perhaps for dramatic effect. And only three remain, however, so they can't keep those on hold too long. I'm sure they're going to move quickly in these last episodes, as they have throughout this season. So we're going to do the same. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. This episode has spoilers just at the very, very end, and we will very clearly warn you. It's just, you know, a couple of bullet points, but stay tuned for that or turn it off before the end of the episode. Yeah, during the episode, we have a few trivial comparisons to the books that aren't spoilery, but we like to throw those out there from time to time. But the important ones, like she says, at the end. Meta Elements. As we do in every episode, we like to talk about the significance of the titles. Pyre, for example, obviously a funeral pyre. There were a decent amount of deaths in this episode from Doris being spaced and all the other people being spaced as well to the attempted OPA takeover that culminated in some recurring minor character deaths. Yeah, just quite a few deaths overall, you're right. So I think that's in a good way to describe the title, probably a correct interpretation. Then we have the Weeping Somnambulist, which is the Crying Sleepwalker. Of course. Then episode 10 is called Cascade, which is the most straightforward of all because we have Prax describing the Cascade effect, the difference between natural and, you know, man-made systems and how the man-made system is a lot less able to handle changes and stress. This is also the intro, uh, these last few episodes, of this character who we had pronounce his name wrong, apparently. Yeah, we'd been saying Praxidiki, which is maybe more fun to say. <laughs> I and think so. you might catch us slip up here and there, but it is... Praxidiki. Yes. But they're just going to keep calling him Prax, probably, too. I almost couldn't say it right there. <laughs> just for fun, the actor who plays Jules-Pierre Mao, whose real name is Francois Chow, that rhymes nicely, we haven't seen him in a few episodes, though he is certainly discussed. But I wanted to point out that he tweeted the other day that he has appeared in two MacGyver episodes now. One in 1991 and one in 2017, 26 years apart, and he's asking if anyone can beat that. Well, I certainly don't know. We're not a MacGyver coverage show. <laughs> Maybe we should be. But that's a great little factoid. Win a trivia contest with that one somewhere. Narrative. We get perhaps our closest look at Earth yet throughout these episodes, not just the UN building, which is where we kind of start with things. We'd seen that before, though we get a different look at it with this peace conference in the big hall there. But more importantly, we get to see the ghetto and a few other scenes, basically other perspectives of Earth in general. Yeah, specifically, we see a Martian perspective on Earth. We see Bobby Draper's arrival on Earth and her voyage to the ocean. Yeah, I thought that was really neatly done. Yeah, prior to her arrival, she asked Martins about the ocean, and Martins said it was awful and dirty, which was... Yeah, that's odd. It, it did seem a little dirty, but it wasn't awful. She liked it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's par for the course with his trying to encourage her Earth prejudice. Yeah, absolutely, and it seems to 
not be working. She is a little disillusioned, it seems. First of all, she's frustrated with the treatment of Travis. Even though she understands it, she agrees with the importance of it, but she still hates it. And she's also maybe a little nervous about what they told her, what's going to happen upon her return to Mars, as far as her role in the Corps going forward. They said, we'll do what's best for the Corps, which is a little ominous. It isn't clear what that means, but it doesn't exactly give her confidence either. Right. Bobby is clearly tougher than her fellow Martians. She doesn't wear the glasses, and it's rough, but she makes it through, certainly more so than the guy that collapses and pukes. Yeah, Kochar found that very funny, though. <laughs> he I... certainly did. <laughs> she, of course, has a little trouble when she escapes, but she adjusts pretty quickly. You know, she looks up, and they told her, don't do that. Don't look up, and, well, <laughs> that's why. She takes off running. <laughs> she still, but it didn't really slow her down much, did it? <laughs> I liked how she used her metal to open the window there. That was really cool. Of course, once she breaks out, she ends up interacting with this Earther encampment where she meets that Nico character who has been waiting from when he was 17, and he's 52 now, and he looks good for 52, for a vocational slot, which is just insane that's incredible yeah it's a totally different perspective than what bobby was led to believe she thought that everyone was just getting whatever they wanted and being lazy and these people clearly are barely above subsistence if that a clarification here though is that most of those people that she was seeing there aren't people even on basic yeah. Nico, it seems, probably was on basic. He was even in the system and waiting for a vocational slot. But a lot of those are people that are just like our homeless people today that maybe are outside of the system. Yeah, because they're not mentally stable for whatever or capable in some ways. And that keeps them from being able to follow whatever procedures they need to follow, registration, things like that. Bobby does talk with Avasarella and gets a proto-soldier shot right shown to her, you know, pretty directly. And obviously he's going to have a reaction to seeing that. I had a reaction to seeing the name of the project there. It was Project Caliban, which is the name of the second book, Caliban's War. That's just a neat little visual tidbit that they threw in there as an Easter egg. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But they didn't have much time to, to talk, of course. They had to leave. Katyar says, we got to go now. And they leave. And it was a good interaction, but it was kind of brief, kind of leaves you wanting more. You hope that there will be more interaction between Avasarala and Bobby. We'll have to see. Yeah, the episode ends on an almost ominous note with Bobby being picked back up there on the beach, where it's showing that she is essentially a prisoner. Yeah, they kind of come for you can see they're like shadowy figures. We don't even see who it is, but it's clearly Martian officials. Before Avasarala meets with Bobby on the beach here, we have their first meeting at the Peace Summit, which was definitely a scene I've been waiting for for a long time. <laughs> it was awesome. Avasarala had some great lines here. I think one of my favorites was, I find it hard to believe a Martian Marine would be tired from sitting in a chair. Yeah, that's just such a great... There's no comeback for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's playing on their pride so perfectly. Yeah, it's really good. She has a lot of amazing lines throughout the Peace Summit. And just in general, she does. But she's at her best in these, these, these situations where other people are uptight and she remains comfortable. Aaron Wright was pretty good in this scene as well, in an awful way, with him cutting that moment of silence short. Yeah, that was, that was awkward. <laughs> the key thing that happens here is that Bobby mentions the lack of a vac suit, which rings all sorts of bells for Avsarala, and as she says, her definition of crazy has contracted. 
Yeah, and it also, unfortunately for Aaron, right, rings bells for him. And whatever's been going on behind the scenes with him, and apparently he is no longer in touch with, with Jules Pierre Mao. We, I think that is true. He's not lying about that. And obviously this leads to him having his confession because he realizes exactly what's happening. He knows all the pieces are there. He's got all the information. And by now, of course, Avicerella has pretty much all the information as well, except for some of these details and specifics, perhaps, that Aaron Wright has now handed over. Before he hands anything over to her, though, he's looking for traces of the proto-molecule on Bobby's suit. And they don't find anything, but he's clearly very worried that things are going to get out of hand again quickly. I mean, last time, Eros ended up hurtling towards Earth and almost killing him. Yeah, and another thing that comes out of this conversation is him admitting to knowledge that Mao had DeGraff killed. So it wasn't a suicide, which is a pretty big deal. And this also really just confirms that Mao is working with Mars. Which is ominous because in retrospect, Avicerella is told that Mars is using pieces of distraction. And at the time, it's a bit of a conspiracy kind of thing to say, but now it appears to be perhaps completely true. They are perhaps using pieces of distraction. Yeah, Ganymede itself was meant to be a distraction. This whole, all of these proceedings are one big distraction for whatever Mao is doing. Yeah, it's certainly not the fact that Eros was Mars's fault, but they are now in on the technology in ways that Earth isn't. I mean, it makes perfect sense if you think back to when Mao would have first been investigating this, he would have tried to sell it to the highest bidder and he would have entertained the idea of working with Mars just like he would have entertained the idea of working with Earth. And Earth has seized his assets, so it's really his only option. He's not going to go to the OPA. Their resources are nothing <laughs> like Mars's. No. <laughs> Another thing that I took from... This interaction with Aaron Wright was we learned a little bit more about his character and about his perspective on things. He seemed to be having close to an honest moment there with Avicerella when he brings up that it started out as a conversation about peace. And this is the right argument to use against Avicerella. It would be the thing that would convince her. But I think that is how he felt about it, that he thought that this was this technology that they needed to have. At this point, he knows that he's going to have to answer for what he's done, as she points out. But he also seems to genuinely want to help to fix things. That said, I'm still not sure that given the opportunity to get back in on the top level that he wouldn't side with Mao. <laughs> he is ambitious. Yeah, we'd see it. Certainly, if it comes down to that or, you know, prison, uh, yeah. We see some of Avicerala's great humorous moments with Aaron Wright. When she says she doesn't understand the phrase, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> and then we get the horse trading comment. So it all comes full circle. <laughs> and then later she uses the term herself. Yeah. <laughs> Very subtle humor there. <laughs> you can see why she gets along with Dr. Turby, who's also a pretty funny guy. As yeah. we'll see <laughs> in his scenes in the Arbogast. We see this conflict between Colonel Janus... I'm sorry, I mean Colonel Anus. <laughs> yeah, the J's silent. It's a really interesting conflict, though, this magic versus hard science dynamic that they have. It's not as simple as all that, because Dr. Turby isn't just some crazy man believing in magic. He just knows that we don't know everything. Yeah, it's like two different schools of thought, I think, really. And one is mocking the other because it thinks it's more serious. But Turby seems to be right at least on this one point, which is that something is going on here. As we see, we're kind of left hanging. We haven't seen what's happened there for a while, but last we saw, you know, they, they were signs that 
something was going on on Eros. There is still, you know, the crash did not blow everything up. The protomolecule <laughs> is still at work. And also there's a Mars ship there, which is kind of menacing them a bit. It certainly hasn't attacked them. And if it did, it would be no contest because they're unarmed. It would be a little odd for them to attack the ship at this point. But it's also important to remember that Dr. Turvey is recording things and sending information to Avicerala. So she's already aware, probably, of what's going on. Whatever the protomolecule is making down there on Venus, probably not as tasty as Alex's lasagna, which he sends along with uh, Amos there on their Ganymede mission. He spends a nice uh, spell alone there. Notice I use the word spell because he's listening to country music, drinking beer molecules, I suppose. Yeah, that was a really great scene. It was very relatable, I think, probably to most viewers. (laughs) The idea of just screwing around in space and with lack of gravity there. It's, it's funny to think about how far away he was from any other human life at all. <laughs> and he's singing, and there's a song about being lonely. And he wasn't really lonely, but he really was far from everyone. <laughs> <laughs> he's having a pretty good time there, getting drunk, but then he learns the news that Ganymede has been locked down, which is definitely worrisome for him. Yeah, it gets serious real quickly, which we kind of knew it was. It was a nice extended, fun scene, but you knew it wouldn't last. You knew something would, would happen. You knew the alert would, would blare. It's exactly what happened. And... Well, I don't know what he's going to (laughs) do. Things got pretty real pretty quickly for Amos there, too. He was looking pretty rough in episode eight. He got triggered by that little boy trying to fight him, protecting his mother, which was a really heavy scene. We're supposed to get the impression, I think, that it's too similar to things he saw as a kid, perhaps too similar to himself specifically. And we see Alex trying to help him. Doesn't really work. He's still kind of in his own pit. Of despair, I guess you could call it. Yeah, Alex is trying to help him, but he's also provoking him a little bit. He doesn't quite realize how messed up Amos is right there, how just depressed he is in that moment. Yeah, you can't really say that Alex handled it well. Uh, but then Amos handled it even worse by kind of losing it, but snapping out of it and, you know, having a lot of emotion in his voice after that. You know, being apologetic, but also being like, please don't provoke me. He's almost like, look, I can't control this. He does come out of it. He gets back into the action. Having things to do helps a lot. Having people to help. Having, you know, a purpose. It just seems to be when he's at his best. It starts because they have to help fight off the takeover at Tycho Station. And he goes out into space and cuts the oxygen. (laughs) And... Then comes the mission with Prax, though, which is a lot more personal and motivating for him because he is helping to rescue a child and then, you know, maybe maybe multiple children, as it turns out. And this just really gets into his own personal story, right? Talking about things he knows way too well, the dark side of. Prax is a little intimidated by him and kind of looks down on him in some ways, but I think Prax is starting to understand just how awful Amos's upbringing was and he really doesn't have perspective on how bad it was for him. And I think he likes Prax. What do you think? Yeah, I think he likes Prax too. I do wonder if Prax might be a new guiding post for Amos because Holden is clearly not doing his job so much. He didn't exactly leap to stop Amos there. He leapt to stop Naomi from stopping him. Yeah, and that's interesting because Wes Chatham points out that there was something different about that scene. When Amos used violence previously, it was always calculating and cold, and he was detached from it. That time, he was emotional, but Holden didn't 
catch that apparently because if he had realized the raw emotion in play there he might have been like okay we gotta stop him now because he's just going off here he's not this isn't just i'm gonna beat you till you give us what he wants he was really just beating him that's true i was thinking that holden perhaps saw the fact that this man deserved it that he was preying on the weak there and that's why he didn't leap to stop it but the fact that he didn't leap to stop it i think does show that he didn't realize Amos was going to kill him right there because they needed that man. That's a good point as well, though, that he maybe felt like he deserved it. I think you're right. That's part of maybe the dark side that Naomi's referring to. Naomi says every bad thing we do makes the next one easier to do. And Holden expresses that he wants to be restrained from this, but they just keep doing these dark things that they kind of have to do. It's going to have an impact on them, whether they have to do them or not. For example, the Weeping Somnambulist plot where they kind of hijack these belters to get to Ganymede and they're pretending to be Martian soldiers. Again. Again, yeah. I mean, if you have the supplies, you might as well do it. They have the Martian ship. They have the suits. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. They have all this amazing gear. This was mostly a one-off plot. I doubt we'll see the woman that had her husband killed again, but there was definitely a cutting moment when she insulted Naomi, calling her a wellwalla. Yeah. Which is calling her basically an earther. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and, and Naomi took that really hard. You could tell she wasn't, that didn't just roll off her back. She felt that insult. I wonder if things like this will propel her even more towards her belter heritage. Definitely possible. She's really worried about a lot of things, and they're not quite in line with what Holden's worried about. They're pretty similar. Holden's mostly worried about the protomolecule, and that's part of why he's willing to go so far and how he's able to justify these things, because he sees the destructive potential of it as basically unlimited. And I guess he's not wrong, but it's also not clear. Yeah, Holden has gone through a genocide on Eros. He saw horrific things. He's very scarred from it. Naomi just hasn't been through that. As much as she says that he doesn't understand because he's not a belter, she doesn't understand exactly why he's so dead set on this and traumatized. Yeah, she didn't get the direct visuals and have it happen right in front of her nearly like he did. She was worried about potentially her responsibility in all this because there was these, quote, proto-molecule shout that was heard. And she was worried that it was from the torpedo that she stashed, but it was not. Yeah, it was from Ganymede. She's also worried about a little bit more mundane things like the hangar bays where Fred is keeping the missiles. Because she's smart, (laughs) as Amos says. (laughs) And she has a great conversation with Drummer regarding trusting Fred who is, you know, an Earther. That's obviously the problem some Belters have with Fred, is that he's an Earther, and that he was he's the butcher of Anderson Station. That's, <laughs> for some people, that's still hard to forget, regardless of what he's done. But I think Drummer was pretty convincing. Now, of course, Naomi still does have her sample hidden on that torpedo that no one else knows about, and she is troubled by this, because Holden has <laughs> said, no more secrets, and she, you know, kind of tacitly agrees, but is like, oh, except for this one, <laughs> at least this one, there may be others, but there's definitely this one. One of the reasons Holden wanted the sample destroyed was so that no one else would get a hold of it, and that's part of why Naomi isn't destroying it, because clearly... That's just not the case anymore. It's out there, as Fred Johnson says. He's like, this is the new reality. The protomolecule's out there. We have to adjust to the fact that that's what's out there now. And we can't pretend that there's a way to keep it from happening anymore. We can't pretend that we can lock it down and destroy it. He still keeps 
his information secret, though. He doesn't tell anyone about Cortazar having Ganymede talk to him, and he doesn't tell Dawes, which Dawes uses against him in this speech that Drummer advises Fred not play. Yeah, it's kind of an early sign of both her skill and her loyalty is saying, no, don't let these other people see this message. And indeed, someone records it, shows it to the other OPA heads. That leads to this attempted coup. An interesting thing about Drummer's loyalty is, is I really was conflicted on this up until the attempted OPA takeover. That was what clinched it for me. But prior to that, I felt like it could go either way. Drummer is sometimes hard to read. And like Holden says... Something happened here to let Dawes get free. Yeah, definitely. Uh, He made the accusation, like you said, it made things kind of uncertain, but became very certain (laughs) after the way she handled herself during the coup. Yeah, we see this takeover by Staz and crew, and we've seen Staz for a while now. He's been a recurring character, minor character, friend to Miller and Diogo. He's the one that goes out to the bar with them. Yeah. Dead now because drummer pretty brutally killed him just shot him in the head no second thoughts but that's the most i've ever laughed at a double execution before (laughs) it was just so sudden with her limping yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's really something it's the rocinante crew that saves them here of course with their maxing out of the co2 scrubbers which increases the nitrogen levels and makes them pass out and it's funny because they save their lives but They still part with Fred on very poor terms, but this is because Fred thinks it's worth it to put the pressure on Holden if he can get the proto-molecule. Yeah, definitely. They're playing for really high stakes here, and Fred is aware of that, and Fred certainly, as we know, is very decisive, and he does a great job of assessing the situation and what the different risks are. When the Rocinante crew leaves Fred, they make the joke that Fred might not be in power when they come back. That's true. And Dawes is clearly ambitious. He's got Cortazar, and basically the only thing Fred got out of that was Diogo in the brig, <laughs> who was very defiant and passionate, and I'm hoping that we'll maybe see Fred try to use Diogo, because I don't really want Andrew Rotilio to be less featured, but also potentially maybe Tycho will get attacked again. This failed attempt may not be the first attempt we see on Fred Johnson. There may be a lot of bad blood still. Some people may want revenge for those deaths. Some other people may still just want to take over the station for the belt because they don't trust Fred Johnson. As we said, there's plenty of people out there like that. We've seen some pretty messed up belters in the Prax storyline in particular. We see this friend Doris of his, a Martian, who basically seems to save him and get him onto a barge out of Ganymede and they're going to Tycho Station. They get to Tycho Station And her and everyone else, except for the Belters, get spaced. Yeah, it was a really shocking scene there and really sad because you can see that there's a lot of bad blood here. These particular Belters are blaming complete innocence for something that had nothing to do with no control over. In fact, people who are good. These are people who work on feeding the system. You know, they're treating refugees like this. Yeah, it's really horrible. No one looks good here. This is our introduction to Prax, however. He is a botanist, as he mentions a few times. Yeah, we we think, ooh, is he carrying around the proto-molecule? At least that's what Holden and Naomi are worried about. It's like, nope, that's a soybean. 
Perhaps these are the famous shooting soybeans that were referred to in an earlier episode when the Marine Said said, may we shoot the soybeans, sir? <laughs> Only if they shoot back. I'm hoping these are those soybeans that shoot back. Fandomedia.reviews. The Prax storyline is really interesting to me. They've had to make a lot of changes to it just because, and this isn't a spoiler, but in the books, as in a lot of books, it's very internal. He's got a lot of thoughts. He's not talking to people necessarily. It's hard to adapt for television. Yeah, I mean, he's agonizing over his missing daughter. That's something that has to be done much differently when you're on TV versus in a book. So it's the same point. And of course, he's going to agonize over his daughter. But yeah, it's delivered very differently as it would have to be. Yeah, it was a shock to me when Doris was spaced, when she was killed there. It didn't happen in the books. That is not a thing that I was anticipating. And yeah, it was really brutal. I was like, wow, yeah. But his arc isn't entirely tragic. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, he does find out that May is probably alive, thanks to the, the help of the Rocinante crew. And also, there's a little bit of comic relief there. We get, are your plans always <laughs> this vague? <laughs> yeah, that was a great line, a great conversation. Like, yeah, pretty much. This is about average. And then later he brings up that he hopes their luck will rub off on him. And they joke around a bit here, but they really are treating him not very well. He feels like a prisoner. He obviously wants to contact people. He's a refugee. He's trying to tell people that Doris was killed and they won't let him. But that all ends up getting overshadowed by this quest to go to Ganymede and look into Dr. Strickland. It's interesting that Amos is the first one to kind of lighten up on him out of everybody. He's the one that tells him about the protomolecule, saying, hey, we're, you know, we're working with him. We should be straight with him. Which is exactly correct. You yeah. should be. And as we mentioned, Amos has a reason to be sympathetic to him. He thinks he's doing this for a good reason, and he maybe just likes him. Yeah, I think there's a lot of development between these two characters, which is interesting. We earlier discussed how Amos was alluding to his own background with discussions about bullies and how they get used as prostitutes and how the boys get used as well. And then we have Prax later kind of giving his deep thoughts on how hard it is to have a daughter with such a really intense, difficult genetic disease. Yeah, it's a perfect example of just mirroring that people do, conversational mirroring. Someone tells you something dark or hard to deal with and you mirror it with something else about yourself that you think is maybe equivalent. And that's how awful Prax feels about him feeling this small sense of relief that he feels like it's comparable to Amos talking about these awful, awful people. Yeah, there's a lot of really good dialogue between those two and I hope there's more to come. While Prax and Amos are investigating Ganymede, they run into a character named Baja. This is Baja Merton, who is in the books. That's how we have to know his last name. I don't know that they say it in the show, but he's a little bit different. I want to point this out because the situation that he's in right there, which is frantic and desperate, that's how Prax is in the books. That point that he's at, uh, he never got out of Ganymede. He was sleeping in those kind of situations. He was thin and emaciated. And so it's just a good example of Prax's potential mental state. Right on. Baja instructs them to meet with Roma, who we talked about earlier, who only wants chicken, which is hilarious, <laughs> but he also looks a little bit like a rooster, a chicken himself with that haircut. <laughs> it was a kind of comical scene. I mean, it's dark and awful, and he's, and he's using people, but dude, don't you want some spices for your chicken or anything? <laughs> visual elements. One of the last things we see is Prax realizing and explaining to Amos about what's wrong with the food supply 
at Ganymede. He does the whole cascade speech, and it's pretty grim. He, he thinks that there's no saving it at this point without a lot of effort, the kind of resources that aren't there at this point. There's no way they're going to fix it with what's there right now, and that's going to cause a bad situation to get even worse. It's already, uh, quote, humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. We'll say that a lot. Yeah, it might be a double epic humanitarian <laughs> crisis. This is a contrast to Earth, which many times throughout the series, especially by Martians, but certainly by the OPA quite a bit, talk about how Earth just ha lives in luxury and they don't appreciate what they have. And we get some subtle clues of this in the peace talks, where first thing we see is this buffet table with a spread of all these fruits that are really luscious and the kind of thing that Mars wouldn't have a lot of, probably. Hmm. Uh, so they, it's maybe a bit of a dig at the Martians. But it's also striking in light of what Bobby sees later out in the streets. Yeah, we see this Earther encampment that we touched on earlier, which happens after Bobby hears Avicerala's speech about opportunities and how there aren't enough opportunities on Earth. And that's what we see with Nico here in a very extreme example. Yeah, Bobby's led to believe that Earthers are all lazy. And this is a, in stark contrast. Avicerala says, they're not lazy. We just can't give them all opportunities. And she sees this guy, Nico. He's not only is he working hard, he's doing things for other people that he doesn't have to. He's being generous with his time, and he is trying to get into the program. And he's a perfect example of someone who doesn't have the opportunity that even someone like Bobby has. I really liked seeing the visual of the Earther encampment itself, of the types of technology and things that they had as homeless people there. Yeah, that was amazing. And then you see... The shots of the city itself, the ocean, which was maybe less spectacular to me. It wasn't the most beautiful ocean, but it was beautiful to Bobby, and that's what matters. Yeah, it's like unlike anything she'd ever seen before. Yeah, exactly. And you see a lot of the wind blowing, and this is overwhelming to Bobby, and it's a great choice to make things seem like so alien and too much to Bobby, and to have the wind blowing through her hair and a bird flying by. On the other hand, she was bored walking around the surface of Ganymede, which to <laughs> us is like, holy crap, look at Jupiter up there. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Look at this. It's incredible. So yeah, it's really a matter of perspective. Like, give me that any day over the ocean, but I can understand why for her it would be the opposite. <laughs> That's a great point. Ganymede did have some really great visuals too some of them were a little sadder than others like the repurposed spaces in ganymede and the greenhouses and stuff like that yeah and all the dying plants and then there was the refugee wall there was like the big layer of all these faces that prax and others were looking at trying to find <laughs> their loved ones there's also some really good costuming choices here like prax is very very stylish scar it sometimes distracts me how good looking that scar is and how perfectly placed it is shades of frankenstein some or something there yeah geez <laughs> but i also really liked his daughter may's backpack she's got this misco and marisco like a little cartoon backpack <laughs> with holograms that's cool which is pretty fancy I took note also of when Amos was getting ready for the run against the uh, gangsters there. The drawer of machine guns. It's just a <laughs> reminder of how badass the equipment on the Rocinante is. We haven't seen it in action since the mission where 25 people were killed in the Fred X bins. <laughs> but I'm thinking we're going to see the Rocinante in action again at least once before the season's over. That's not a book spoiler. I'm just guessing. I don't really know what order they're going to put things in. 
Yeah, they certainly need to get out of Ganymede eventually. Certainly. It might even be this next episode. You're right. Audio Elements. The song that Alex was listening to there, speaking of the Rocinante, was by Hank Williams. Classic. Yes. Still apparently a classic many hundreds of years later. Yeah, some good country music for the Martian. <laughs> it's funny because we have Nico bring up that Martian music isn't anything to write home about. And even Alex isn't listening to Martian music. Yeah, and Bobby kind of agrees. That might, you might be right about that. Speaking of music, what a trick that was with Doris being spaced, right? Part of it was the music. It was such happy, like, oh, parting music, but still parting <laughs> on good terms. And then, oh, whoa there, everyone's dead. Earlier we talked about how not everyone on Earth is on basic. Of course, some of them have been placed in a vocation. A lot of them are on basic, but a lot of them aren't registered. They're not on the grid. Amos himself, when he lived on Earth, would have been one of those people. And we hear when Bobby is going through the Earther encampment, when she's just entering, we hear this ad, this audio ad, just saying, we're allowing people to register now. Come in and register for basic. It might be like an amnesty or something, but for whatever reason, not everyone's signing up. It's not entirely clear. There's a small audio Easter egg here as well, and I do mean an audio Easter egg. It's about the audiobook narrator, Jefferson Mays, who we hear referred to in one of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, right on. Final thoughts. So, Ash, what was your favorite moment of the last three episodes? I really liked just Alex's beer trick. I'm not <laughs> a drinker or anything, but I just really like the idea of someone... Messing around in space, and I like Alex's character, and it was all really good. But I also really enjoyed the Naomi and drummer scene with them talking and looking into the logs at the antenna, which just was a really illuminating conversation in a lot of ways, and I just want a lot more of both of those two together. <laughs> what about you, Aziz? I really liked the peace talks from Avisarala's point of view. I really loved the dialogue in there because she just had so many great responses, so many good one-liners, so many good comebacks. She's really awesome in those kind of situations, and I hope they write plenty more of them for her. I think one of my favorite lines of hers in that scene was, whatever I goddamn want to. <laughs> yeah, she said it so happily. And it's made so much better to me because of her voice. And I know a lot of people don't actually like her voice, and I can't understand it because I think it's so unique and interesting, especially for a female voice. And I could listen to her narrate anything, really. Yeah, she has a deeper voice. It's very strong and powerful. I agree. I don't understand not liking it either. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that some people think it makes them think of cigarette smoking. Huh, interesting. Although I don't know that it's because of that for her. Now we're going to discuss a few things that pertain to the books. So if you haven't read the books or don't want to be spoiled on any book plots, time to say goodbye and we'll catch you for our coverage of episode 11 onward. If you are sticking with us, here we go. Fandomedia.reviews We'll start off with something that we touched on already, which is just the difference in Baja who, of course, we see eventually in a very major role, whether this is going to be this character, this actor that we see on Ilus eventually. And how do you say Ilus? Ilus? I don't know how to say it, yeah. Whether we see this Baja there eventually, I don't know, but we certainly see at least some variation on that character. We went into earlier why they made this change to him. I think it makes perfect sense, just like I think it makes perfect sense to make the changes they've made to Prax, whereas Prax just... Doesn't translate well to TV as he is in the books, basically. Yeah, like you said earlier, a lot of his story is internal, so they have to make some changes. It's just a 
nature of the beast as far as the difference between the mediums. Of course, in book four, Baja is one of the POV characters, and that's really important. Like you said, we don't know if he's if they're going to keep it that way for the show. Later in the series, of course, there's a mass migration out of the system as new planets are available. And that starts with the trickle in book four of the planet Ilus or Illus or however you say it. <laughs> this is foreshadowed pretty heavily multiple ways by showing the situation on Earth with all these people that have no opportunity. And the same with some of the Belters. This is why people would want to go and find a new home and start anew and build new societies is because that's way better than what they've got right now. I'll tell you, this plot line right here is the thing I've been most excited to see on TV since I first got to it in the books. When I'm talking to people at the show, it's almost hard to contain myself with how excited I am about how little they know that we're about to see this gate and we're about to see a million planets that people could live on. I wonder if they're going to have Havelock back. Remember, he's one of the POVs for book four. True. I'm guessing they will. He doesn't have to even have a major role, but all they got to do is use him, and it's kind of cool to have some continuity. We also see something new here in the attempted OPA takeover. We've seen some similar strategies used here with the upping of the nitrogen levels to knock people out. I guess that means they're not going to use it again later, but at the same time, I would love it if they used it again later, because when something works... You use it again. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, if someone else takes over a station and you need to stop them, mess with the oxygen. Duh. Another big thing that was hinted at in these episodes was Naomi's son. When she's asked if she has any kids of her own. Yeah, by, by Prax. And she kind of looks down and is like, no. <laughs> you know, it's, kinda, it's, it's pretty sneaky. If you know what to look for, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, it's like you do not have a good poker face right there, Naomi. But <laughs> who would ever think she had a child? Yeah, very sneaky. We also see the mention of Alex's family, which is a little bit different from the books. Like we've mentioned before on the podcast, it's not even clear in the books whether he knows he has a child. It seems like he doesn't know, but we just don't know for sure, actually. And in the show, it's very clear that he knows that he does. He has a photo of them, and it haunts him a little bit. So I expect we will eventually see this. Yeah, it's definitely been used differently here, even with Amos taunting him about it, for example. Which wouldn't have even been something he could have said <laughs> in the book. We also have this developing plot with Dr. Lawrence Strickland, which is, you know, not his real name. Yeah, in the books it's revealed that his real name is Dr. Carlos Marion. Yeah, and they are on the right track in the show as far as figuring out that he's associated with the protomolecule. They're not wrong. They, he does work for Protogen. That's part of how they figured out all this in the first place. And indeed... May's genetic disease is why she's being used like this. Right. We have one plot line that is somewhat different from the books in Aaron Wright confessing, which surprised me when it happened. I yeah. didn't think he would confess, and I don't know what's going to come of this plot line. Yeah, it's really quite different. We know that in the long run in the books, Mal ends up in prison. Now, someone who doesn't trust this confession is Katyar, and we as book readers should be agreeing with Katyar in our suspicions because in the books, there isn't even this confession. He is trying to set Absaral up, and now she knows this information that's kind of incriminating, so that might be what's going on. They may try to pin it on her Instead, and maybe act like she's the one who's known these things all along and not him, and he may be trying to scapegoat her. Yeah, we will have to continue tuning in and see how this plays out in season two, although it's possible that we won't truly see this Mao and Aaron Wright plotline play out until season three, which they've been renewed for. 
Yeah. <laughs> One other minor thing from the books is a little bit more on Amos's backstory. He actually mentions the name Lydia, who is his... Lover slash mother? Yeah, for lack of a better term. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't an existing <laughs> there isn't an existing word for those two things combined. <laughs> That's the end of our coverage of episodes eight, nine, and ten. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope you come back for our remaining coverage of the Expanse season two. It should be a lot of fun, as I expect the episodes themselves will be. You can help us out by going to iTunes or using whatever podcatcher you use. Give us a rating or a review. It helps get the show noticed. Helps get the word out there. We appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Fanderson Dawes. And I'm Fandrew Rotilio. 